I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. C-13 Originals. I ended the last episode in 1991, just after the succès de scandale of American Psycho, with Brett sending off Donna's manuscript, still called The God of Illusions, soon to be called The Secret History, to his very powerful agent, ICM's Binky Urban, thus leaving Donna on the brink of fame and fortune beyond her wildest dreams. But I don't want to start on the brink. I want to start before the brink, with Donna's blank years, from the spring of 1986, when she delivered the Bennington commencement speech, to the spring of 1991, when she sold her book. We're about to fill in that blank. I'm Lily Analik, and this is Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. Here's how Donna fills in that blank in a 1992 interview. Quote, after I graduated from college, I lived with a friend who didn't make me pay rent. The friend, of course, is more than a friend is Paul McGloin, her longtime Bennington boyfriend and the former pupil of classics teacher Claude Fredericks, the basis for the secret history's Julian Morrow. Dan Ross, class of 85, remembers visiting Donna and Paul, then living in a triple-decker in East Cambridge, close to Harvard Law School, where Paul's a student. It was like Archie Bunker's house. A lot of plaid upholstered, you know, nubby, you know, it, it was, it was you know, furnished. It was in like 1965 in there. It's afternoon. The three of them are hanging out, watching the Phil Donahue show. I guess he had lottery winners on. And they were all like truck drivers and custodians. And, you know, I said, it's funny. These people are all blue collar, salt of the earth people. That, that's who wins the lottery. Paul, he looks at me and says, people like us don't play the lottery. <laughs> it was just so cutting. It sounds rather a dour scene, and Paul rather a dour presence. Now, what's Donna doing for money? She had a typewriter set up in the living room. I never asked about money with, you know, like, what are you doing? I don't know if I ever knew her to have a job. So the arrangement with Paul that Donna described in a letter to Jonathan Leatham over 1982 to 1983 non-resident term... Quote, this is a very nice setup, being coddled and financially supported, has possibly been reestablished. Not that I imagine she's living a life of leisure. No doubt she's working all the time. She just isn't working for cash. Here's Todd O'Neill, the basis for the secret history's Henry Winter. 
one of the few really intimate conversations that I had with Paul, which was around the time of graduation, was what he planned to do after Bennington. And being a little surprised and somewhat appalled at the idea that he was going to go to law school. And he very frankly told me that though he would have preferred to go on pursuing classical studies or something to do with the intellectual life, he felt that he owed the responsibility to his parents to go to law school and be a, a worldly success. I mean, I think he was he genuinely liked or loved or whatever Donna, but at the same time, that was a way of vicariously continuing to be the person he wanted to be. Sometime after Paul finishes Harvard, he and Donna moved to New York City, Greenwich Village. And in 1988, a poem of Donna's is published in an anthology, Mississippi Writers, Reflections of Childhood and Youth, Volume 3, Poetry, edited by Dorothy Abbott. Dorothy Abbott is the Dr. Abbott Donna mentioned to Jonathan, again in an NRT letter, the woman she'd met through her Ole Miss boyfriend, Ben Herring. At the back of the anthology are short biographies of the contributors. Dorothy Abbott. I put the bios together, but what I thought was the best part was the part where they write about their childhood or growing up. Well, childhood and youth was the subtitle of the collection. She didn't answer the question about growing up in Mississippi. And hers is only six lines, whereas some of them are very long. But anyway, here it is. D. L. Tart, 1963, was born in Greenwood, Mississippi, and grew up in Grenada, Mississippi. Her first poems were published in Mississippi Poetry Review when she was 13. Tart worked as an editorial assistant at Atlantic Monthly in 1985. Currently, she lives in Manhattan and is a student at the Parsons School of Design. This bio is Donna filling in the blank in a bit more detail, so let's examine it. She had, as we know from episode 10, a summer internship at the Atlantic in 1985. And while there's no record of her as a student at Parsons, she did, according to one interview, work at the school as an assistant to a painting teacher. As for the poems in the Mississippi Poetry Review at age 13, well, I couldn't find them and neither could my researcher. And neither, for that matter, could Todd O'Neill. He went looking for them back in 1983. Donna was always casting about her this mysterious aura of being someone who was interesting and talented and had all kinds of uh, already accomplished in some ways. And yet she basically was silent all the time. She'd stand there with these, you know, large dormouse eyes and pursed lips and say nothing at all. When we found out that she had published at 13, I just realized I want to see this with my own eyes. How could she have published something, that, particularly poetry, at 13 years old? Todd made a beeline for the campus library. I went into the card catalog and looked through the Mississippi Root View to see if I could find at any point that her name had been published, and I couldn't find anything. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't overlook something, but I, don't, I didn't find anything. This is the aspect of Donna's past that I alluded to in episode 9, the aspect she tweaked, or I should say, maybe tweaked, since it's entirely possible that she published the poems under a different name. But it's what made Todd and Matt, 
already suspicious of her, more than suspicious. Still, I wouldn't even be bringing up the poems if it weren't for this encounter, which Dorothy Abbott had with Donna in 2002, the year Donna's second novel was released. In Memphis, at Burke's bookstore, a little friend came out. She said to me, weirdly, it's odd how you remember things, but I remember she thought a moment and said, you were the first person that published me, is what she said. I didn't question it, and there were other people in line, but I remember that because that just seemed not in keeping with what I had originally heard from her. It's a strange slip. We know from Ben Herring that Donna did publish a short story, The Death of Dr. Faustus, in a literary journal, The Harbinger, as a young teenager, in 1981 at the beginning of her freshman year at Ole Miss. Donna gave the story to Ben, then the day manager of the Daily Mississippian, the school newspaper, and Ben was so floored by it that he got it into the hands of famed writer and Ole Miss professor, Willie Morris. Willie was equally impressed. Indeed, Willie was impressed to the point that he became Donna's first important mentor. Asterisk, my researcher and I were also unable to locate Dr. Faustus. But archives have holes, and Ben is absolutely certain that he saw a physical copy of the Harbinger, the one with Dr. Faustus in it. Yet by spring semester, Donna seemed embarrassed by the story. Ben. She was already moving on. She was still an old Miss, but she could see her you know, future coming together. And I said, you know, don't submerge the death of Dr. Faustus. She was like, I'm sick of that story. I don't want to talk about that. That's in the past. So maybe switching the short story to a poem, the harbinger to the Mississippi Review, if that is in fact what she did, was her way of claiming the publishing credit to which she was entitled while disowning the thing actually published. I mean, it's not as if she could have anticipated the World Wide Web, which refuses to allow old work to die a natural death and which makes a certain kind of fudging impossible. Maybe she had a momentary lapse, failed to keep her story straight, the reason she told Dorothy that Dorothy was her first publisher. It's new work, however, that's on Donna's mind in 1991. Here's Brett on Binky Urban's reaction when he asked her to read Donna's book. Binky Urban was, oh, whatever. Yeah, I mean, sure, I guess. I mean, what? no one knew who Donna Tart was. It's like a friend of mine. Binky might be reluctant to read at first, but she perks up fast. Jerry Howard, formerly an editor at Penguin, now an editor at Norton, on Binky. She had a very, very good eye for writing. Believe me, you took Binky's calls because this is quite literally true. She could be bringing you the book that could make your career. So she sent me the secret history. So That's what I meant about answering Binky's calls. Jerry might answer Binky's call, but he can't meet Binky's price. Not in this instance. Ian Gittler, class of 84. Oh my God, it it all happened so quickly. This was not like a, a slow burn thing. Donna was this unknown writer, and then all of a sudden, there was this huge bidding war for her book. I remember Brett referred to her as Madonna Tart. 
Donna's editor, Gary Fiskajon, also editor of American Psycho. Donna's publishing house, Knopf. Donna's advance, a reported $450,000, plus $500,000 for paperback rights. Film rights are bought by Warner Brothers, with Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn set to adapt the novel for the screen. Donna dedicates the book to Brett. Quote, for Brett Easton Ellis, whose generosity will never cease to warm my heart. Brett. Part of the reason the dedication is there, um, regardless of my hovering over this book for a long time, is that I shaved off about two and a half to three years of having it move through the system. And so I think that, that she was indebted to me for a lot of things that I simply would have done anyway. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal to actually send the book or to, to have the pleasure of reading those pages for a decade. It was, it was um, well-earned. Brett shares the dedication with Paul McGloin. A thank you gift to Paul, certainly, but also a parting gift. Here's Matt Jacobson, the basis for The Secret History's Bunny Corcoran. About 10 years after graduating, I was in New York and feeling sentimental, and I had made an appointment to see Paul and went to his office. He was pretty, he was distant. But anyway, he told me about the breakup with Donna and how they were living together during his law school days. And then the, the day the check came, she dropped him like a hot potato. And... uh he was still quite wounded about it at that time. Has the romance with Paul simply run its course? Or does Donna, as Matt suggests, dust Paul once she no longer needs him to foot the bill? The exact words of her dedication to him are, quote, And for Paul Edward McLoyne, muse and Mycenas, who is the dearest friend I will ever have in this world. Mycenas, so you know, means patron of the arts which seems to me grateful acknowledgement of the fact that Paul has been supporting her. In any case, Donna is done with Archie Bunker-style furnishings and quiet afternoons with Phil Donahue. Dan Ross. God, it would have been 94, maybe 96, somewhere in there. Uh, I ran into Brett and uh, his boyfriend at a Borders bookstore on Westwood Boulevard. I said, how's Donna? I haven't, I've lost touch with Donna. and he sort of gave me the rundown on the post-secret history Donna thing. goes, oh my God, you know, after the book came out, she went crazy with guys, drugs, and parties. Brett's a novelist and perhaps prone to exaggeration, an occupational hazard. But he would have had first-hand knowledge of Donna's activities. Here's why. Because Brett and Donna are constantly in each other's company. Donna is seeing Bill the best friend of Brett's boyfriend, Jim. Bill and Jim are both lawyers at the ultra-prestigious Millbank Tweed, which is where a character in the secret history, not a main character, but a strong supporting, ends up working. Cloak Rayburn. Many people think that cloak is based on Brett. Could Rayburn be a play on Ray-Ban? Sunglasses are, after all, Brett's favorite accoutrement. Donna reads from The Secret History. There was a tight, fashionable clique of Californians at Hampton, mostly from San Francisco and L.A. Cloak Rayburn was at its center, all bored smiles and sleepy eyes and cigarettes. The girls from Los Angeles were fanatically devoted to him. He was the sort you saw in the men's room at parties, doing coke on the edge of the sink. 
If Donna is going a little crazy during this time, and God knows she's entitled after sacrificing nearly a decade on the altar of the secret history, Brett's already there. 1991 is the year of American Psycho, the year of his infamy. And speaking of Brett's controversial novel, what did Donna make of it? Brett discusses with me. Right around the time, secret history was making the rounds. American Psycho had come out, and um, I knew she probably loathed American Psycho. And I remember one night when we were all coke, and I dared to ask her. She glared at me. She couldn't answer. She couldn't fake it and say, oh, no, of course, I like it. It was very scary or whatever. She just glared at me with a small little smile on her face when I kept prodding her. Like, come on, tell me what you thought. Tell me what you really thought. I want to hear yeah. Nothing. I'll never forget her looking at me in the darkness of Jim's loft uh, with that look on her face. And really, I felt she wanted to say something very badly, but even wasted on coke in the middle of the night wouldn't yeah. let her go there. And I think she wanted to tell me, I, thought, I think your book was god-awful. The intense period of closeness between Brett and Donna is short-lived. That was around the last time I saw her because then she ended up with Gary Siskijohn and they had a long-term relationship. She left, I believe, left Bill for Gary. It's under the auspices of Donna's editor-slash-lover, Gary Siskijohn, that The God of Illusions finally becomes The Secret History, which is the title of a book by 6th century ancient Greek scholar Procopius. Here's Donna speaking at the John Adams Institute in 1993. Procopius was was an official historian, and he was a historian during the time of Justinian and Theodora. And during the time they were they were alive, he wrote these these very sort of state-sanctioned histories. But then pretty much the second that Justinian and Theodora died, he wrote the secret history, which was what was really going on, and, um, and not, not this official history at all. And, you know, Justinian was terrible and Theodora was a whore. Gary and Knopf are giving Donna the star buildup. The secret history isn't any other book, and it doesn't look like one. It's longer and narrower with a chip kid design cover and sheathed in acetate which is what antiquarian booksellers wrap their goods in. And its early September release is strategic, before the mid-fall release of the guaranteed blockbusters. A lengthy profile of Donna is scheduled to appear in that month's issue of Vanity Fair. Lisa Howarth, who, as you might recall from Episode 7, founded, along with husband Richard, Square Books in Oxford, Mississippi, remembers Donna and Vanity Fair writer James Kaplan coming to town remembers, too, Donna choosing to stay at her house rather than a hotel. It was a big deal for Donna, who we'd become good friends with. And James was very charismatic. (laughs) A number of women or girls, you know, reacting enthusiastically to to him. And um, Donna was a little intimidated by him, or intimidated by the idea of having a big feature about her in a major magazine, and she wanted to stay with us as kind of a buffer, I guess. Just before the issue hit stands, Donna phones Ben Herring. She said, well, I, I, you know, told them your name, but, you know, they didn't include it in the story. I had felt so hurt that it was not named by name 
if I had been included in the acknowledgments to the secret history, I, I would have flown myself off, you know, a, a bridge. I mean, it, it would just would be just too crushing. I'm going to read to you a passage from that Vanity Fair profile. This is writer James Kaplan directly quoting, I repeat, directly quoting Donna about how she met Willie Morris at Ole Miss. Quote, it seemed like it would be a good thing to work on the Daily Mississippian. I didn't really have very much in the way of newspaper articles to submit, so I gave in some short stories. And the fellow called me back into his office and said, these are great, these are wonderful. So I said thank you and went off. But without my knowing it, the guy at the paper had given a copy of one of my stories to Willie Morris. And I was in a bar at the Holiday Inn, and Willie came up to me and gave me his hand and said, are you Donna Tart?" And I said, yes. And he said, my name is Willie Morris, and I think you're a genius. Without my knowing it, the guy at the paper had given a... I read this passage as well to Ben, otherwise known as, quote, the guy at the paper who had, for obvious reasons, skipped the profile when it came out. He said, my name is Willie Morris, and I think you're a genius. Those are her words. His response. My God, read that again. I can't believe it. Okay. I do as instructed. Utter bullshit. <laughs> Reading that Willie Morris came up to her to borrow. I had an invitation and appointment for Willie bring her to me, to meet tonight at the Holiday Inn Bar. That was the purpose of me taking my 74 Dodge Dart to New Dorm, picking up Donna, who's all charged with excitement, and driving us to the Holiday Inn Bar. My understanding is that Ben gave Donna's story to Willie very much with her knowledge, and that when Willie was slow to read it, she pushed Ben to push Willie. I asked Ben if this is so. Yeah, she she pushed me, but but I, I want to say to my own credit that I was always pushing myself as as well. I mean, I was not going to let this thing uh, die because I mean, she was my friend. I cared about her. I, I loved her, and uh, I, I you know I knew this was really really vital to, to happen. Ben continues. In some sense, she just wants to give. No credit whatsoever, as though the gods had done it. A supernatural force. And um, that sense of herself, those are the fuck you book cover photos that she gives. I am at the top of Mount Olympus. You know, I'm hanging with Zeus. I am Zeus. And you are not. You most definitely are not as though the gods had done it, or as though her talent is so colossal, so undeniable, she didn't have to struggle or strive, maneuver behind the scenes. Her talent is colossal and undeniable, but she still had to struggle, strive, and maneuver. I should note, Donna is happy to admit to toiling away on her craft. Her response to talk show host Charlie Rose when he asked her how she managed the secret history. Worked every day, worked every day for eight years. It's her career she doesn't want to be seen lifting a finger for. Ben again. She is very proud. She has every right to be. And um, she doesn't want the curtain pulled back on The Wizard of Oz. She wants all the breadcrumbs covered back to Kansas or back to Grenada, Mississippi, as the case may be. 
I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. The Secret History comes out on September 11, 1992. It's an immediate sensation. In an earlier episode, I gave New York Times book critic Mishiku Kakutani a hard time, saying, in effect, she could always be relied upon to get it wrong. Either I was unfair to Kakutani, or it's like the old chestnut goes, even a broken clock is right twice a day. From Kakutani's review of The Secret History, quote, How best to describe Donna Tartt's enthralling first novel? Imagine the plot of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment crossed with the story of Euripides' Bacchae. Donna, too, is an immediate sensation. There's the Vanity Fair profile, but she appears as well in Esquire, Mirabella, M, Cosmopolitan, Glamour, and L. She looks so good in these magazines, and she doesn't look like anybody else. From James Kaplan's Vanity Fair piece, quote, she is a kind of girl-boy-woman in her liniments. Her Norma Desmond sunglasses propped in her dark bobbed hair, her striped boy's shirt and shorts from Gap Kids, the only store whose ready-to-wear fits her, and her ever-present cigarette. She's also a writer of a mystery, who is herself one. Again, from James Kaplan's Vanity Fair piece, quote, Donna Tartt has her own secret history. Her childhood in Grenada should not, must not be talked about. Bennington places, but no Bennington people may be associated with her book, Paul McGloin may not be spoken to. In other words, Donna's self-creation, her character or persona, is as big a hit as her literary creation. Meanwhile, Jonathan Lethem is watching it all go down from Northern California. He reads from his nonfiction piece, Zelig of Notoriety. There's a peculiar spirit of abjection to my situation in Berkeley. Stranded what seemed a lifetime's distance from my glimpse of the action in Vermont, working on my fourth unpublished novel in my off hours, shelving and stickering and gift-wrapping Brett's and Donna's books at the shop, while mostly not wanting to admit I'd known the two of them. Yet when American Psycho came along, I found myself defending Brett at the shop, not only from customers, but from other clerks who wanted to fall in with a censoring frenzy and bar his book from the store. Donna's scandal was another brand. 
No one had ever seen a first novel hoisted past reviewers into legend by a publicity machine. It's not just The Secret History's instant classic status, though, that makes reading it such an unnerving experience for Jonathan. Every person I recalled from our time at Bennington seemed reworked in her pages, except I saw no spot for myself. Unless, as I joked to my girlfriend, it was as the murdered Vermont farmer, a character so beneath the regard of the book's characters that he barely registers as human. Between me and myself, it wasn't a joke. I felt certain I was the farmer. Funny that Jonathan identifies with the farmer. FYI, listeners, it's the farmer who's slain by the Greek students during a bacchanal gone haywire. He's the first killing in the book. Funny because Jonathan is a city boy. But on to Jonathan's point about Bennington people being reworked in Donna's pages. This is something she denies in interviews. In a 2002 Guardian profile, she said, quote, when the secret history came out, people did not understand it was fiction. And they went off pretty much trying to track down Francis and Henry. They really didn't understand that, you know, I made that up. According to Todd O'Neill, though, there is no denying. The secret history isn't so much a work of fiction, it's a work of thinly veiled reality, a roman à clé. I first heard of this novel uh, being published, I was at Claude's house. You know, Claude and Matt and I got endless calls. Everyone was saying, did you know Donna just wrote a book about Claude and you all? And Claude is Julian and Matt is Bunny and you're Henry. And here's Matt Jacobson on what it's like to read about yourself getting offed by your bestest buds. I, I got the galleys and, uh, and I read it up to Bunny's death and then my ADD kicked in. I didn't care anymore. And I remember telling my mother, oh, I've been, I've been caricatured in a book, in a novel, and, uh, and I get killed. My character gets killed. And my mother said, oh, oh, no. No, no, no one would kill you in person or even in a literary form, no. And then she read the book, and she said, oh, yeah, that's you, all right. And it's not just Matt Jacobson who gets killed. It's Bunny as well. Bunny the character, of course, but also Bunny the person. Bunny, Paul McGloin's old girlfriend, Bunny. Here's student X, class of 82, tight with Paul and Matt, but particularly tight with Bunny. Someone called me up and said, oh, my God, Donna has written a book about our friends, you know, and the main character is Matt. It's totally Matt. But Matt is named Bunny and Bunny gets killed. And we were all just like, what? So we were sort of like horrified, but also, to be honest, kind of, I mean, it was a little titillating and fascinating, but it still, it just felt You know, once the initial titillation had worn off, it was like, well, that was sort of a shitty thing to do. Why, why would you do that? Of all, really, of all the names in the world, hmm, interesting. Why that name? Really, hmm, you know, that just seemed a little too specific. And I don't know, you know, why is she lobbing bombs at this poor woman? I don't know. Or did she think it was funny? I don't know. It just seemed nasty to me. As has already been established, and as Student X has just confirmed, Matt's bunniness is visible from outer space. I mean, it couldn't be anyone else. That was the other thing. It just sort of felt like, really, you couldn't, you know, kind of change things up a little bit? I mean, I guess she didn't say that his father was, you know, famous architect or anything, but 
But she did take the first name of his famous architect father, Hugh, and give it to one of Bunny's brothers. Back to student X. Matt, he was just almost like a cartoon character. He had the little round glasses and, you know, his hair's kind of flopping around all the time. And he was like, you know, hey, girl. You know, he seemed like the kind of guy who'd like chase, <laughs> chase you around, around the desk in the 50s or something. You know, very, very sort of, yeah, very, you know, throwbacky. But it was all done. It was done with a wink in a way. You know what I mean? I didn't like the tone that she portrayed him at. It was very disdainful the way that she, because I, because I love those things about Matt. It was sort of like, I don't know if someone, something that you prize about someone and someone's like, oh, well, (laughs) look at this stupid person doing these stupid things. And the portrait Donna painted is not merely broad strokes. The voice and the look, the manners and the mannerisms. It's down to the smallest particularities. Bunny suffers from Matt's learning disability, dyslexia. Bunny draws Matt's cartoons. Todd O'Neill. When I lived in Rome at first, we used to correspond. And I remember once he wrote me a letter and he, it was, you know, he had drawn himself as uh, a Roman general, like in profile as if he were on a Roman coin. And then he had drawn another coin where I looked like you know, Caesar with the, the laurel leaves around my head and, and also on a coin. And he said, you know, he said, friends don't ignore friends. Friends don't, you know, and delivered this long discourse in the form of a cartoon letter. Donna reads from The Secret History. Around the second week of January, I got a postcard from Rome. It was a photograph of the Prima Porta Augustus. Beside it, Bunny had drawn a surprisingly deft cartoon of himself and Henry in Roman dress, togas, little round eyeglasses, squinting off curiously in the direction indicated by the statue's outstretched arm. Bunny has Matt's oh-you-rascal-you habits. In an early scene, Bunny takes Richard out for an expensive lunch, then forgets his wallet. Matt. I was quite the bounder and never really kept track of my funds. And uh, so, yes, I would uh, I would invite Paul out to lunch and then uh, and we'd have a grand old time and chuckle. And then, whoop, check would be delivered to the table and I would have no money. And then he'd have to pick up the check. And I think that happened twice, but it was never intentional. Bunny even has Matt's brother's OU rascal you habits. Donna reads. Maybe it was because the Corcorans were Irish. Maybe it was that Mr. Corcoran was born in Boston. But the whole family seemed to feel, somehow, that it had a mysterious affinity with the Kennedys. Francis had told me of walking into a fashionable, very crowded restaurant in Boston once with Bunny. There was a long wait, and the waiter had asked for a name. Kennedy, Bun said briskly, rocking back on his heels. And the next instant, half the staff was scrambling to clear a table. Matt and I discuss. That's funny because that was actually my brother who did that, not me. He's the one who looked like he could be Robert Kennedy's kid. No, yeah. I was looking at and your And when I traveled with him in, in Europe, he wanted me to say, well, okay, if you want to say you're Kennedy, say you're a Shriver. Matt makes a stray remark. I knew it was terribly affected and grand at the time, but I remember gesturing toward a pretty girl sitting in the corner of the dining room, and I, I said, she reminds me of the way Diana's is painted on the ceiling of my father's club. Everyone was like, yeah, pass the salt, thanks. You know, thanks, Matt, good one. And that remark finds its way into Bunny's mouth. Donna reads an exchange between Richard and Bunny in The Secret History. 
Come on, I said, still laughing. She's really pretty. That she is, that she is, he agreed, holding up a conciliatory palm. Lovely girl. I've always said so. Looks just like a statue of Diana in my father's club. And when Donna exhausts her store of madisms, she goes trolling for fresh ones. Matt. One day, uh, after college, I answered the phone in our slum apartment on MacArthur Park. And uh, lo and behold, Donna Tart. And, uh, and she immediately asked me some questions. The, uh, hypotheticals. And uh, I immediately say, how did you get my number? Oh, your mother gave it to me. And I, I just say, well, I, I've got to go. I'm sorry. And uh, I realize now that she was uh, she was trying to figure out how Bunny would get through a situation. Paul, she must have picked his brain. For example, I don't I don't think she ever saw the cartoons I drew, but Paul certainly did. It's an interesting alternative theory Matt's proposing. That Paul was necessary to Donna because he had greater knowledge of Claude and the Greek group. Todd has a similar thought. Before I let him air it, though, listeners, a word of caution. Matt and Todd were seriously annoyed by Donna's book and didn't much like her to begin with and so tend to ascribe to her only base motives. Donna certainly could have loved Paul and needed things from Paul at the same time. And in the dedication, she does call Paul her, quote, muse. Proof, I'd say, of how vital to the book she believed he was. Todd. I think that's one of the reasons she kept Paul around until she finished the novel, was she needed him as a, as a source book, as it were. Does that add up? I think so. First off, it seems unlikely that Donna studied Greek with Claude in a formal classroom setting, in the way that Paul, Todd, and Matt did. And beyond that, her exposure to Todd and Matt, whose characters appear in the book far more than Claude's character, was severely limited. Yes, they grudgingly allowed her to pal around with them, but only for a semester. Not even for part of a semester. Formidable as her imaginative powers are, Donna would have needed an informant, a mole, if you will, to write the secret history. And now, Todd, on the resemblance between him and Henry Winters. Henry's apartment was like my apartment. His eye problems, the chip in his tooth. I smoked Lucky Strikes. I wore suspenders and glasses. I was very deep into the study of Plato and Plotinus, as Henry is described as being. But I did not systematically translate Anacreon into English, as he did. That was not something that I did. But uh, I know what she's referring to. I translated Theocritus into English. I did go on a trip with Matt, and I did end up having to pay for it because his father didn't give him much money and he was a bit of a sponge, though he and I always had fun together. And what Henry said about Julian, I loved him more than anyone in the world, was true of how I felt about Claude. I mean, Claude was my teacher and my mentor, you know, and, and we were best friends. He was the single greatest influence on my life. Tom Jacobs, a teacher at Todd's high school, the Abbey School, knew Todd well as a teenager. I asked Tom at what point in the secret history he figured out that Henry was based on Todd. From the first word in the book, from the first appearance of Henry to the end, it's obvious that it's Todd. He was head and shoulders above someone who was head and shoulders above all the rest of the students. When he would talk with him, he was just sort of like, he was on my level. I mean, and of course, higher, as I found out. I don't want to ruin the secret history. 
But the ending of The Secret History, you know, they're all together. And the only way out of all of this, the bunny murder and everything being discovered and the game is up and all that is for Henry to shoot himself. It's the only logical way for this to work out for the good of everyone. When that happened, I saw two things. One was most people are going to think that this is kind of a fantastical ending. Two, not only does Donna Tart want you to see that that is the only logical conclusion for the Henry character, but indeed for the person Henry's based on, it would have indeed been the only one. I mean, he would just, and it wouldn't have, there wouldn't have been any agonizing. It would be like, okay, this is the right thing to do. Therefore, I will do it. So according to his former teacher, Todd was capable of blowing out his own brains on principle. He was probably also capable of sending a troublesome friend, arms pinwheeling, over a steep ravine. And as for staging a bacchanal, well... The only person in our group who probably would have been interested in a, conducting a Dionysian ritual would have been me. <laughs> he never did it, though. As Dominic Gross, the inspiration for Julian in Less Than Zero, never became a junkie prostitute. All of which is to say, the major plot points of the secret history are invented by Donna. Invented within the context of Todd's real personality, yes, but invented nonetheless. Listeners, I'm reminding you of this, but really I'm reminding myself. The secret history is literature, not journalism. Just as Equality in OA, and in certain classmates of his at Buckley, touched off something in Brett's imagination, so Equality in Bennington, and in certain classmates of hers at Bennington, touched off something in Donna's imagination. And when Brett and Donna are writing, they aren't transcribing, they're transforming. They're artists, that is, they're magicians. And Less Than Zero and The Secret History are authentic works of art and magic, which means they cannot be decoded or demystified. Not fully, not by me, not by anyone. I know this, but when I fall in love with a writer, I crave closeness to him or her. And style, skill, technique, polish, all at a certain point seem like barriers to that closeness. I want to knock those barriers down. And so I find myself slipping into this weird kind of ass-backwards reversal where I become impatient with the art, i.e. the novel, i.e. the reason I was attracted to the writer in the first place, and obsessed with the truth or the real, i.e. the novel's origins, Julie Foreman as the, quote, actual Blair, Grenada, Mississippi as the, quote, actual Plano, California. It's like ignoring a lavishly cultivated garden in order to stare at a bunch of dirt-covered seeds. What a stupid thing to do. And yet I do it. I'm making this confession by way of explaining the shudder of excitement that runs through me when, in the winter of 2020, I'm thumbing listlessly through a box of unsorted Bennington photos and come across one labeled Agamemnon, 1982, It's a Polaroid of an outdoor performance of the Aeschylus play. From the slant of the light, you can tell that it's early morning, the sky fissured with clouds. The student actors are wearing these white tunicky things, and behind them is a landscape that is harsh, unspoiled, and very beautiful. You could be looking at a scene set in the ancient world, and then you know you're not because you spot an incongruous element. Matt Jacobson. He's standing in the foreground, not in costume, appearing, in fact, Trey Contemporary, also Trey Bunny Corcoran, in wire rim glasses and a sports jacket. 
hands jammed deep in the pockets of his khakis. Todd O'Neill remembers. Somebody in the theater department made us these uh, semblances of a Greek chiton, the, the robe that the Greeks would wear. I think they were made of sheets. Well, we were performing the opening of the Oresteia, and we did it at dawn. The watchman is looking out over the hilltop where he's stationed, and he suddenly sees a fire rise up, signifying that, the, that Ilium has finally fallen and the Greeks will be coming home. And so we timed the opening of the play with the moment when the sun peaked over the hilltop that we were performing behind. And so it was, it was quite glorious, actually. Matt could not memorize anything in Greek, so he never did participate. The bedsheet chatons worn by all the classic students during their bacchanal in the secret history, well, all the classic students save Bunny, who is excluded from the bacchanal on the grounds that he'll not take it seriously, kill the mood, would have been stained red with the farmer's gore. Otherwise, this is exactly how I pictured them in that famous scene in the novel, returning to Hamden's campus at dawn in... White robes and bloody like something from Edgar Allan Poe. Was Donna in the audience that morning, watching the student actors recite Aeschylus's lines while Matt Jacobson looked on sheepishly? Is that the precise moment the plot of the secret history began to formulate in her mind? Unanswerable questions. This question I put to Todd O'Neill, who does have an answer, or at least an opinion. How good a likeness of Claude Fredericks is Julian Morrow? Donna's Julian is clawed through a glass darkly, a distorted image. At the book's end, Julian is revealed to be a sham, and as something worse than that as well, a kind of emotional vampire, his desiccated mouth fastened on the throats of his young acolytes, sucking on their adoration. Here's Donna speaking at the John Adams Institute. These are very young people you're talking about and they're in the, that are the protagonists of this book. In the early parts of the book, they speak so glowingly of Julian. And I try to give little clues to the fact that this is really not the case. The things that they're telling you about Julian don't quite coincide with the way that he behaves. Julian is, is really very much a moral neutral. I mean, charismatic figures are frequently all surface. Julian is described in the book as being being like a mirror. He's very brittle, he's very shallow, but he creates this illusion of warmth and depth like a mirror does. Todd. Claude considered it a betrayal. He was not only hurt, but he was offended and and furious. I don't think, uh, I don't know if he ever spoke to Donna, but he certainly wouldn't at first. She tried to call him when the book came out. And he refused to speak with her. He refused to meet with her. He had wanted nothing to do with her after that. It seemed to me that she had created a a false prophet out of Claude. That Donna portrays him as a cipher and an imposter would, of course, be enraging to Claude. I suspect, though, that something else about what she's done bothers him even more. Claude is a boy from the provinces who dreamed of one day becoming a great artist. And while he became the romantic partner and helpmate of artists, he never quite managed to become the thing itself. His poems and plays haven't amounted to much, and he's been unable to find a publisher for his journals. Ben Anastas, in his New Yorker profile of Claude, calls the journals, quote, a monumental disappointment. But when he's hired by Bennington, he discovers that, as a teacher, he's supremely gifted. Gifted, too, at constructing a fantasy that he invites a select few to participate in. 
In episode nine, I dubbed this fantasy his, quote, living novel, said that it is his true consequential contribution to American letters. Only here's the twist. He doesn't get to make the contribution. Donna does. That's what the secret history is. Donna turning his living novel into an actual novel, thus demoting him from creator to character. Todd O'Neill. I think that's why people are still to this day fascinated by Donna's book. It's not the potboiler part, the murder mystery that fascinates them. It's the part that Claude gave her. Even though nobody knows ancient Greek and probably wouldn't spend the time learning it if they were given a free opportunity, they still sense something valid and beautiful there, something that the modern world doesn't provide. But Claude doesn't give it to Donna, which to me is a key detail. It seems as though he never invited her into his private and exclusive fantasy. She came as the plus one of an invited guest, Paul McGloin, and once there was made to feel like a crasher, if not by Claude, then by Claude's students, Matt and Todd. And then this girl, physically tiny, shy to the point of introverted, wrested it away from the all-powerful Claude and opened it up to the reading public. Now anybody with a library card can enter. We are about to hear from David Lipsky. David, as you'll no doubt recall, was introduced by Brett to Donna in the spring of 84 so that he could read early chapters of the novel she was working on. David's response was, to put it mildly, discouraging. He recognized Donna's talent, but felt that the book was fundamentally wrong-headed. Like, she was writing about a college that was so clearly Bennington, yet she was turning it into the Oxford of Evelyn Waugh's Brides Had Revisited. He flat out couldn't get past the disconnect. Incidentally, had Waugh been alive in the early 90s, Donna, I suspect, would have been no more eager to secure a blurb from him than Brett was from Joan Didion. There are scenes in The Secret History that push homage to the breaking point. For example, when Richard visits for the first time Francis's family's country house. Donna reads, It was dark and I couldn't see a thing. My fingers finally closed on the door handle, and only then, as I was climbing out of the car, the moon came out from behind a cloud and I saw the house. It was tremendous. I saw, in sharp ink-black silhouette against the sky, turrets and pikes, a widow's walk. Golly, I said. The golly, I said, is straight from Brideshead. And I mean straight from, as in word for word. In Brideshead, the golly, I said, comes when Charles Ryder visits, for the first time, the ancestral home of his Oxford chum, Sebastian Flight. But back to David Lipsky. After our first interview, he went and read The Secret History, something he'd never actually done before. His reaction. I loved it. And this might surprise you listeners. Apart from the brilliant framing device, the prologue, which tells you on page one who's dead and who killed him and how, the book is, in essentials, unchanged. Donna has that great writer's sense of how something could read and how it should read. And she's willing to keep working until it reads that way. The same paragraphs and pages that were moving in the same order and they were coming at us in the same pace, but it had benefited from marinating under Donna's fingertips for an additional seven years to where every paragraph just sung. And crazily enough, it's the aspect of the book that initially made him reject it. The fantastical quality of the college, of Hamden, this Bennington by way of Oxford school that Donna's created, is what moves him most. 
so generally, like when you're imagining your campus experience, it's that you go somewhere, there's towers and there's beautiful history. And when you arrive on campus, it's always between 445 and 545. So you get uh, magic hour type cinematographic effects and you form beautiful friendships with people who know the world slightly better than you, right? And then can bring you into a, a cool realm that has something to do with a shared inherited cultural history. And that the buildings themselves, the age of the buildings and the, the venerableness of the campus, that adds to our wistful sense of our youth in a place where many youths have passed. And generally, you get there by some kind of uh, like notable achievement in um, high school. You've excelled in some way to get to a really beautiful and highly sought after campus. And that is the, the ground condition for that kind of novel. And Bennington was for people who something had gone wrong, basically, right? It's like, it might have been a family thing that went wrong, or it might have been an academic thing that went wrong, but it doesn't at all feel like a campus. And the people there aren't the kinds of people who would be in a campus. There are people who, in various ways, were either too cool or not energetic enough. So either under or over what was required by high school. And what is amazing to me, and which shows the power of fiction, is that now the generation of students who I teach at NYU, their idea of what college was going to be, it's based on Donna's experiences at Bennington. And that is shocking and extremely cool and is one of the wizardly cultural effects that was worked on the American psyche by the people who were at Bennington in the middle of that decade. Basically, Donna's unreality overpowers reality. That's how strong her will is, how strong her artistry, Meaning, she wished to have a Brideshead Revisited experience as an undergraduate at Bennington, to be among a group of dauntingly erudite and rafishly dissipated young lore types at an elite British university in the 1920s. An impossible wish. Yet one she wished so long and so hard that she not only made it come true, she shaped the wishes of the undergraduates who came after her. Kids now go off to college hoping not to have the Brideshead experience, but to have the Donna Tartt experience. I know, because I was one of them. So, I've emphasized Donna's what Janet Malcolm called, quote, Promethean theft, stealing as the foundation of making. Donna boosted from Matt and Todd, and from Claude most of all, in order to create her book. But she left something behind that's arguably even more valuable. David Lipsky. Donna preserved them. That's the weird thing too, right? It's the kid sister who you're trying to ankle. There's that great verb from Variety. Like those guys, they were trying to ankle her, get rid of her, and she preserved them. However they were acting would have been totally lost. It would have just been a number of gestures lost to the light waves that are no longer preserved anywhere but in Donna's book, which is an amazing, an amazing revenge, but also like all acts of revenge that take too long, ends up being a kind of generosity. Claude, Matt, and Todd disturbed, beguiled, and moved Donna. And now they disturb, beguile, and move all of us. They will live on long after they die, and that's thanks to her. Okay, final thoughts on the secret history and its real-life counterparts. We've already determined that Julian is the stand-in for Claude, Henry for Todd, and Bunny for Matt. 
My contention is that Richard is the stand-in for Donna. So who's the fictional Paul McGloin? Way back in episode 5, I said that I initially assumed Henry was based on Paul. And the reason I assume this is because Henry is the heartthrob of the book, even if Camilla is the official object of Richard's affections. Again, David Lipsky. Richard, he's in love with the group. But Camilla just, the way the book is designed, Camilla just represents, because Richard, the character ostensibly isn't gay, she represents the one way that he can make love to the group, right? I don't think he's especially in love with her. But like, he's rescued by Henry and even lifted up in his manly arms from a potential grave of snow. What a romantic scene. Like, you forget that you're reading a male narrator in a great scene like that. Paul is certainly not Francis Abernathy, the wealthy and fey Bostonian. Nor is he Charles McCauley, Camilla's brother-slash-lover, angelically blonde and southern. As I've said in an earlier episode, Charles and Camilla McCauley probably owe more to Brideshead Revisited's Sebastian and Julia Flight than they do to any Bennington people. Though Paul and Donna, you'll remember, were thought to be incestuous siblings by their D.C. landlords during 1982-1983 NRT. David Lipsky on which character Paul might be. He's not in there. I wonder if that was at his request, but it's one of those things where you are preserving something and you know that you're not preserving the person that you're spending your time with, which is, in a way, such a devastating slight. And if you're not a writer or a strong reader, you won't even know how devastating the slight to you is. Not remotely slighted, Bennington College, called Hampton College, a major character in the novel. For example, the 1980-something disappearance of Hamden student Bunny Corcoran strongly echoes the 1946 disappearance of Bennington student Paula Weldon. Paula left campus to go on a hike on a Sunday afternoon and never returned. Same as Bunny. For another example, the red herring plotline involving Bunny, the Brett-like cloak Rayburn, and a New York City drug deal gone wrong. Donna reads from The Secret History. Cloak took a last draw on his cigarette. You know, he said, that I deal a little coke now and then, don't you? I know this Chinaman down on Mott Street in New York. Kind of a scary guy, but he likes me, and he'll pretty much give me however much I can scrape up the cash for. Well, you know how broke Bunny always is. Well, he's always been real interested in the whole thing. I'm just kind of worried is all. He knows where the guy lives, right? Say he went down to New York with a couple hundred dollars, right? And talking like he had a lot more where that came from. These guys will chop you up and put you in a garbage bag for 20 bucks. Put in a garbage bag is the precise fate of Bennington student Barry Weinbaum. An article on Barry, which appeared on the front page of the New York Times on September 5, 1982, during orientation week of Brett, Donna, and Jonathan's first year at Bennington, titled Life and Death of a Campus Drug Dealer, opens thusly. Quote, When his body was finally found, in a green plastic bag jammed between two decaying buildings on Manhattan's Lower East Side, Barry Stanford Weinbaum was dressed in the collegiate clothes that had been his trademark. And it's not just the ghostly or ghoulish qualities of Bennington that Donna borrowed. David Lipsky on reading The Secret History. It put me back in the Bennington dorms in a way that I hadn't been there since I was at Bennington. Like, she nailed it. The view from Richard Papin's window, that, that just a, that's like a Bingham view to me. I can see the cul-de-sac that's in. 
I know how the sounds are in the in the carpeted corridor outside. She catches all that. Like there's a strange way that rain would bring out earthworms on the slate walkways at Bennington that I haven't experienced anywhere else. And that strikes Richard at one of the sequences there that brought any number of sensory things back for me that just aren't preserved anywhere else. Next time on the finale of Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. The story as told does not harmonize with Claude that I knew he would not have behaved in the way that he was accused of behaving. That he would have tried to seduce a student, maybe, but that he would have been in any way coercive, no. But obviously it was manipulated as a way to stain his reputation and give them an excuse to fire him. Donna's book was Elizabeth Coleman's unwitting accomplice because it sowed the seed that there might be something insidious in what he was doing with students. This has been a presentation and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Once Upon a Time at Bennington College is executive produced by me and Chris Corcoran, created and written by me, directed by Zach Levitt, edited by Perry Kroll, script edited by Bruce Handy, production support and additional editing by Ian Mont, mixed and mastered by Bill Schultz, production coordination by Terrence Malangone, studio coordination by Sean Cherry, Artwork and design by Kurt Courtney. Marketing by Brian Swarth, Josephina Francis, Moira Curran, and Melissa Wester. The original music is by Joel Goodman. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. It's Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini-series is live now, each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.